All right, if you have a Bible, why don't you open it to Joshua 23. That's where we'll be this morning. Joshua chapter 23, we'll uh, start in verse 9 and read down to verse 13. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Joshua 23. If you're a guest with us this morning, this is what we do. We sing together, pray together, and then we open the Bible, and we'll spend the next half hour or so just going through the Bible. It'll feel a little bit like a Bible study because I'll keep saying, look at the Bible, because that's where our authority comes from. We've landed in Joshua 23. Here's the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua is now giving sort of his last words to the people of God before he dies. We pick up right in the middle of a speech in chapter 23, verse 9. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there, verse 9. <clears throat> this is what Joshua says. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you... No man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that the things I say today would accurately reflect what your word has given us. We pray that Christ is exalted to the glory of God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for every brother and sister in Christ in here, that you would strengthen their souls, that you would bring back the joy of salvation. Father, I pray for every man and woman that is without Christ and right now feels the condemnation. God, would you awaken their hearts? Would you open their eyes? Would you unstop their ears to hear and believe the goodness of God found in Jesus? And so help us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Like Moses before him and even King David after him, we've dropped in the middle of Joshua, and he's giving his last words. Joshua 23 and 24 really is three speeches, and in these three speeches we find him telling Israel, as they are now living in the land, what they should and should not do. It's interesting, when Jesus gave his final words on earth, in Matthew 28, after the Great Commission, his final words are comforting there. They're confidence building when Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. By contrast, Joshua's words are not so comforting. In fact, what you have here in front of you is a warning. Here is a personal appeal from a man who is concerned that the people of God now living in this foreign land will slip into some sort of idolatry. 
All you got to do is turn the page a couple of times and there you'll be in Judges chapter 2 and there they are, the people. That's exactly what happens. Maybe Joshua could feel what so many of us feel right now. Maybe Joshua could feel the moral ground shifting underneath his feet. If you're in education or you work at a hospital or you're in medicine or you work for a big company, you see it. You feel the moral ground shifting under your feet. Especially if you were to think of things to do with gender. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful, you see that happening and it's very easy to get angry. Some of what God calls us to do. The last thing we need to be is angry. What God is calling us to do in this world that is shifting and changing and darkening, God is calling us into personal holiness. God is calling Hickory Grove to be a congregationally healthy church. God is calling us to have our minds and our hearts and even our souls saturated with the Bible. I mean, even the speech that Joshua makes, when you look at it from verse 9 down to verse 13, even this speech is nothing more than Joshua taking the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and all this is is an exposition of the Torah. Verses 9 and 10, when you hear him talk about God's promise to drive out nations, that's Joshua explaining Deuteronomy 4. Verse 10, when, when he talks about how one of them drove out a thousand, that is Leviticus 21. He's just explaining it. Verse 11, when Joshua talks about God's command to guard yourself, Deuteronomy 4, or God's command to love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, when you drop into verses 12 and 13, the warning about marriage, that's Exodus 23, or the warning about the traps, that is Exodus chapter 10. All of these things Joshua is saying is the Word of God. And by God's grace, every bit of it has been bound together for our benefit so that we might be pressed on to personal holiness, creating a congregation of men and women that together form a healthy church that actually loves God's Word. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy? Paul told Timothy to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Brothers and sisters, in this confusing and dark world, let us not lose focus on the call of God on our lives. It, it, must, be, it must be guarded, guided. And I really think this passage shows us just how to do it. So I'll just say it like this. We guard our hearts with hope. We guard our hearts with hope. Join me there in verses 9 and 10. Let's go to uh, Joshua and see what he's saying. Let's drop right down in the middle of his farewell speech in verse 9. And the first thing I want you to see is that our faithfulness is guarded by providence. Our faithfulness, what you do, is guarded by Providence, or if you prefer the word sovereignty, here's a good place to put that. You'll see it. 
You'll see what I'm talking about in the very structure of these two verses. When you read them, let me show it to you. You start on the outer edge. What you're going to see is a structure where the first line says the same thing as the bottom line, and then the two lines in the middle say the same thing. It's Hebrew poetry. It's called a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M, and the very structure itself tells us something how God works. Let me show you the sovereignty of God right there in verse 9. <clears throat> Start at the top. The Lord your God has driven out before you great and strong nations. God did it. Verse 9. Drop down to the last phrase at the end there in verse 10. It is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised. God did it. So Joshua says, top, verse 9, God did it. Bottom, verse 10, God did it. The very structure of it, on top and on bottom, you have Joshua pointing out the good provision of our God and the good provision of God's grace. He's reminding them, don't you remember he dried up the Jordan River? He knocked down the walls of Jericho. He made the sun stand still. God paves the way. God gives the victory. God destroys the enemy. You can take this understanding of God moving and God's grace. You can press it all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament and into our understanding of how salvation really works, that God actually is the one who saves us, that the only thing, Spurgeon said, the only thing we bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And it's good for you now and then just to explore the bottomless reaches of God's good grace found in Christ. So you have at the top, verse 9, at the bottom, verse 10, God's providence, His sovereignty, His provision. But notice it's surrounding something. Go back to the text and look at the middle two phrases. We've looked at the outside verses. Now look at the two inside phrases. Verse 9, and as for you, Okay, that's what God did. What about you? As for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts flight to a thousand. Now, stay with me in this structure. It's the providence of God on the outer shell, the sovereignty of God that makes your faithfulness possible. God has built the platform. God has made the stage. God has given direction. God has nourished your soul. Why? So that you might live a faithful life for His glory, for the adornment of the gospel. We, we understand, you hear this at Hickory Grove all the time. We understand that God's sovereign hand is involved in all things, including salvation. We try to describe it like this. That God is the holy creator who created all of us. He created you in His image. It gives you dignity. That image of God in you has been disfigured by our sin. That sin is not just it makes you feel guilty or makes you feel bad or like you don't have a purpose. Sin is actually a crime against a holy and just God. And because it is a crime, a just God will punish sin. The wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death. It's not just being far away from God. It is actually being condemned by God. It's a, it's a far worse problem. And the promise of the Bible is that God is not just just, He is also loving. That He loves us to the degree He gives His Son Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, living perfectly. And at the cross, here's what happens. Jesus dies on the cross 
to absorb the judgment, the wrath of God, so that any believer doesn't have to. And the promise of the gospel is if you turn from sin and believe in the finished work of Jesus, the promise of the gospel is that you will be saved. That faithfulness is provided by God's providence. Or here's another way to think of it. <clears throat> You've got some things you're going to do this week. You maybe make plans. You look at a calendar and know what you're going to do on Thursday. By Thursday, you hope to be doing such and such. It might be good for us to think in our minds, if the Lord wills that I'm going to the movie on Thursday. If the Lord wills that I'm taking a trip on Thursday. Or by God's grace, you don't have to say it every time, but it might be good to work that into your mind and thinking process because then you start to recognize it is God's providence that allows you to be faithful. Let me give you another way to consider it. Uh, you might say it like this, by God's grace, you can defeat sin. By God's grace. But you've been fighting, something you keep falling to, some temptation, you can resist temptation. Or let me, let me come to... Maybe your life has just been absolutely devastated by something tragic that has happened to your life and you can't really get over the hump. I'm going to say to you, by God's grace, you can overcome devastation. By God's grace, you can get through profound sadness. By God's grace, you can recover from terrible hurt. By God's grace, some of you have... Lord forbid, some of you have, have, have dealt with abuse. You've been abused. I, I just want you to hear that by God's grace, God's grace is strong enough and loving enough and empathetic to, to carry you through. There's hope on the other side of that. By God's grace, maybe you've been through a terrible divorce and you feel like you're carrying By God's grace, he can bring restoration. Maybe your home life was terrible. You're the product of some terrible home life. You should know that by God's grace, he'll bring you out of that. It is God's providence that makes your faithfulness. It guards your faithfulness. I'll just, I'll, I'll just tack one question on this point. Okay, God has been so good and so gracious, so providential. Are you being faithful? You see, it's your faithfulness. It's guarded by God's providence. Let me give you something else to notice in the text. You'll, call, you'll see it right there in verse 11. Here's the second thing. It has to do with our souls. Number two, our souls, our souls are guarded by love. Let me call your attention to verse 11. Verse 11 is short, and I'm not, um, I really am not happy with the way it's translated in most English translations. The ESV is too short. I think the New American Standard is a little closer. The NIV is pretty good. I found one in something called the Aramaic Literal translation. The reason I'm telling you this is because there's a Hebrew word underneath that doesn't come out in the English. We read it in verse 11. It says, be very careful, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. That little phrase, be very careful, might say in your Bible, uh, take care, keep watch over yourself. It should be translated, in my estimation, take great care for your soul. 
Because in the Hebrew Bible, it's the word nephesh, soul. It is what makes you who you are. It's what distinguishes us from the animals. This is what God gave us at creation. Go back to Genesis 1 and read the account, the general account of God creating man. Then come down and look specifically in Genesis 2, how God formed the man out of the dust and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a nephesh, a living soul. And, and, and Joshua reaches back, gets that word, puts it here, and Joshua is saying, you, as you walk into this land, you need to guard your soul. And then he tells us how in verse 11, guard your soul by loving the Lord your God. Many of you sitting right here today, you didn't think anything about your soul this morning. You might have thought, of, well, is there enough time for me to stop at Starbucks and get a cup of coffee before I get to church? You may have thought about what you were going to wear. Very seldom do we ever sit down and contemplate the, the health of your soul. When it is the primary factor of who you are. It is what Jesus said. And, and it is our souls that are endangered. You may say, what, tell you what's going to endanger your soul? I think our souls are endangered by what we allow through our eyes. What do you see? I think you put your soul in danger with images, the things that you allow to come into your eyes. I think that we endanger our souls with the things that we hear, you listen to or watch. I think we endanger our souls with the environments we end up. I think you can endanger your soul watching too much news. You think the world, I mean, the world's out of control. The world's not out of control. We serve a God that controls all things. Don't we believe in the sovereignty of God and the control of God, that God is in control and doing all of this, working history to its ultimate end, to the glory of God and our own betterment? Absolutely, that's what we believe. You've got to watch what's, what's in your soul. You're letting... Don't let bitterness drop into there, that root of bitterness that's causing you. That's bad for your soul. So how do we fight that? I think this passage tells us how to protect our souls. In verse 11, guard your soul, therefore, by, see it, verse 11, loving the Lord your God. Do you see it? Let's talk about, um, let's talk about loving God. What are the characterizations of loving God? I think you'll find them in the text. You go with me there to verse 11. You see that word, therefore? It tells us that loving God is a response to grace. The word therefore makes us look back. Verse 11 says it like this, be very careful therefore. In other words, based on the grace found in verses 9 and 10, be careful therefore to love the Lord your God. You see, God's love is a, we, we love God because it's a, it's a, it's a reciprocating love. God's love is a causal love. In other words, God's love does something. God's love is a, is a life-giving, creating love. Isn't that what John said in 1 John 4, 19? What did he say? We love God because he what? He first loved us. And, and truthfully, our love for God, your love for God is a reflection of, of how you view your salvation. 
You know the story, don't you? In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house. That man's name is Simon. He goes there for a dinner. It's a formal affair. And they are sitting at dinner, having conversation with serious men. And then in walks a woman that is a sinner. That's a euphemism. She probably is a prostitute. She comes in there, and evidently Jesus had had a conversation with her earlier, some, some time before. She is so overcome with emotion that she is breaking down, crying. The tears are fly up. They're falling from her eyes to such a degree they're dropping on the feet of Jesus. And she's down there wiping his feet with her hair, anointing his feet. While that's going on, Simon thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. She's a sinner. Jesus addresses Simon. He says, Simon, I have something to tell to you. And he gives him the parable. And he says, listen, there are two men. One owes 50 denarii. The other owes 500 denarii. And the one they owe this money to, he has forgiven their debt. Now, Simon, which of them is going to be more grateful? And Simon says, well, the man that was 500 denarii in debt. And Jesus says, that's right. Simon, do you see this woman? Ever since I came into your house... You've not treated me anything like this. You've not washed my hands or feet. You've not anointed my head with oil. And yet this woman here, she cannot stop. Do you know the lesson, Simon? The lesson is, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. Look, if you, if you understand that God saved you, as a hell-deserving, wretched sinner. If you understand that God loved you even when you were his enemy, then you end up loving God for all the marvelous grace that he's given you. You see, your love for God... It's a response. It's not you trying to get God's grace. It's a response to God's grace. Your love for God is, is a love because of all of his marvelous grace. Let me give you something else about loving God. What else do we know about loving God from verse 11? Verse 11 tells us that loving God is medicine for your soul. It's going to bring healing and, and hope to your soul. I mean, that really is the primary thrust of verse 11. When, when, when your heart is fully turned to love God when, look, when you find joy and contentment in Christ, when you think about your salvation and it makes you love God all the more, when you think about all the things that God has done for you, including, I mean, we sang, Sheldon sang about that. We think about what God has done. It does something in your heart. It, it makes it so that your soul becomes full. And when your soul gets full of loving God, you don't have any more room for all the filth that the world is trying to get you to take part in. Let's just talk about contentment for a moment. Content. If you can get content. If, if you ever get content in Christ, contentment is such a great defense against temptation. When your contentment is in the Lord Jesus, you don't fall for the wrong man. When your contentment is in the Lord Jesus, you're not thrown off and tempted by pornography. When your contentment is in the Lord Jesus, you don't have to cheat, lie, and steal. 
When your contentment is in Jesus, you're not tempted by all the things that come your way. Why? Because you have found great satisfaction. I mean, certainly this is what Paul meant when he said in Romans chapter 5, when he talked about the love of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says, Hope does not disappoint, doesn't put us to shame. It's because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Loving God is this, is this great defense. Loving God, let me say, t- tell you something else about loving God. Verse 11. Loving God is, um, is an act of your obedience. It's an act of being obedient to God. Go with me back in your mind to the great commandment. Matthew chapter 22 there, Jesus is asked, which one? What is the great commandment? The great port of the law. Matthew 22, verse 36 and following. What is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, here's the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. That is loving your neighbor as yourself. Think with me about what happened to Peter. Don't you love the apostle Peter? So the apostle Peter is with Jesus going up to the crucifixion while Jesus is being tried Peter is out in the courtyard. He denies Jesus three times. Jesus locks eyes with Peter. Go read the story in Luke. Peter goes outside, weeps bitterly. He is estranged. Jesus is crucified. God raises him from the dead after the resurrection. Peter had denied Jesus three times. Jesus goes to Peter. You know the story. And three times, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter, each time, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And you know what Jesus responded? Jesus responded, go do something. Go feed my people. You see, God, he guards our souls and he motivates our lives and he secures us so that our obedience, your obedience to God is not some legalism Your obedience to God is adorning the gospel. It is glorifying God. It is pointing people to the goodness found in Jesus. Loving God is this. You loving God is practical evidence that you actually are a Christian. And then what John said in 1 John 4, verse 20. John said, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he sees cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's our souls. And our souls are guarded by loving God. So I would just ask, I mean, do you? Do you love God? And if so, if your immediate response is, yes, I love God, then I would just press that further. How do you love God? I mean, how is it evident? How is it seen in your life? Let's take the two points. Our faithfulness is guarded by providence or sovereignty. So that in verses 9 and 10. And then in verse 11, we saw that our souls are guarded by this love, right? Guard yourself, your soul, by loving the Lord your God. I'll give you one more thing. There's a third point, number three. It's our lives. Our lives are guarded 
by truth, truth. Join me there in verses 12 and 13. Keep them together. Verse 12 and 13, it's an if-then statement. It's a piece of logic in verse 12 and 13. They go together. Verse 12 is the if, and then in verse 13, you see, know for certain that, that's the then statement. Just, you just keep looking at verse 12. Let me just give you the if statements in verse 12. Go with me there. Just take a look at it. Joshua says, if you turn back, that's apostatized. If you turn back, if you cling to the remnant of the nations, those, those Canaanites in there, if you cling to them, if you make marriages, if you intermarry, if Paul would say unequally yoked, if you intermarry with them, if you associate with them, if you're anything like them, if you become like the world, that's verse 12, that's if, then, verse 13, here are the consequences. Know that, look, at, look with me at verse 13, look how they're stacked up in verse 13. Then, the Lord your God will no longer drive out the nations. No more victory for you. If that's what you're going to do. Then they will be a snare and a trap. Those two words are synonyms. that mean the same thing that unsuspectingly you're going to fall. They will be a snare and a trap. Then, keep looking at it, they will be a whip. That word whip is used one time in the entire Old Testament. It's hard to put the definition on it. I'm not really sure what it is. You have to define it by the context. They will whip your sides. It could be spear, but either way, it's something terrible. Then, they will be a whip for your side. Then, keep looking at it, they will be thorns, not in your thumb, thorns in your eyes. Then, you will perish off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. This is, this is a sobering warning. You know what this reminds us? This reminds us that our God is a consuming fire that He is not to be trifled with. He is not to be used or mocked or ignored or disobeyed. This is the same message that, that Jesus gave to Nicodemus. You know the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. They're having a conversation of what it means to actually be born again. Nicodemus is not getting it. Jesus then becomes very plain in his speaking. It's where we get John chapter 3, verse 16. But let's read it in its context and let's finish with that. 16, 17, and 18. This is what Jesus says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Slow down. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus did not come to condemn. 
Because without him, we are already condemned. He came to save, and he did that at the cross as a substitute. The finished work of Jesus, living perfectly, dying on the cross in the place of sinners. And the promise of the gospel is if you will turn from your sin and believe, you can receive hope and forgiveness and be reconciled to God. Now this morning, as we close, I just want to put a couple of questions before you. We're going to end today's sermon. We're going to sing a song of worship. And, and when we do, I hope that you'll sing with all of your heart. We want to end the day singing unto the Lord. But before we get there, I want you to, just for a moment, bow your heads with me and think with me on these things. Just a couple of questions. Here's one of them. Are you, are you living a faithful life to Christ? You just you. Just ask the question to yourself. Are you living a life faithful to Christ? If not, what, what, needs to, what adjustments do we need to make? Ask God to help you to make them today. Here's the question. Do you love God? But as you answer it, would, would those close to you say, yes, she loves God? You love God. How about your own soul? What, are you guarding your soul? What is it that you've let in this week? What have you seen? What have you been a part of? What conversation? What, what is it that you've not guarded your soul from? I'm asking you today as a believer, as a sister, a brother in Christ, what do you need to repent of and start guarding your soul? And, and for any of you, are you, are you living under condemnation are you living without Christ this morning we're going to sing and when we do I would just invite any of you brothers and sisters in Jesus you want to just come and pray you do that we're just going to sing and worship it's a good time to come forward and pray have a pastor to pray with you or to pray for you or if you want to talk about coming out from condemnation and putting your faith in Jesus being forgiven our pastors are here to, to pray with you talk to you about what that actually means. Today we close singing unto the Lord. Father, thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. Thank you for the joy we have there. Father, I pray that you would heal wounds, that you would call people to yourself. God, help us as we worship today, as we sing to you, strengthen our hearts for the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just stand please as we sing together.